Thanks, Lucy, and good morning, everybody, whether you're looking through the screen or you're uh, here sitting before us today. You know, the Germans have come up with uh, a number of wonderfully expressive words, and one such word is schadenfreude, and I just, you just, you just want to say it, like it's such a good word, it's got a great ring to it, schadenfreude. Um, it's a great word, but what it describes is actually not quite so wonderful. Because schadenfreude means to take pleasure at the misfortune of others. Now, it can have its more innocent sort of forms, you know, the humour of slapstick, the sort kind of sympathetic humour that we have when we, uh, someone trips over in front of us or accidentally gets hit in the privates and we sort of go, oh yeah, but I'm kind of laughing at the same time. And sometimes it's just full-on ugly. The nasty joy that wells up when someone who represents a group that you either envy or dislike suffers in some way. It's, it's, it's kind of a venting of one's inner prejudices. And yet there's also times when, when schadenfreude um, can be the outlet of your sense of justice as well. A sense of satisfaction that, that at, the la- at last the bully gets to experience what it's like to be bullied. Or the corrupt businessmen's um, ill-gotten gains collapse and crash around them and the glamorous lifestyle that they broke every law to get now is nothing they're going to experience. Or when when their cheat gets exposed and publicly shamed for their cheating. And that kind of happens and you sort of go, good. In the playgrounds of my childhood in the 70s and 80s, it came out in the expression, sucked in. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to celebrate when justice seems to be getting done? When people finally reap what they sow? Yes? No? Well, it's hard, especially when somebody else's defeat coincides with your victory. Well, we've come to the end of 1 Samuel, the scene's been set, David's 100 kilometres away in Ziklag and the Philistines have gathered for war and Saul's camped on the opposite side of the Jezreel Valley and on the, on the battle's eve, as we read in chapter 28, Saul did that fatal mistake really of consulting the spirit of Samuel through the medium of Endor and he hears that fateful news that the very next day is going to be his last day on earth that he and his sons and his country would lose the battle. So when you get to chapter 31, we know what's going to happen. We just, we know, we've already been told. And and so the telling of the story in chapter 31 is just so clinical, it's so brief. Look at verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. So just as Samuel had said, the Israelites meet with defeat. And then the next element of Samuel's prediction comes true as well. Look at verse 2. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Saul, uh, sorry, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. And at last, the scene that we knew was coming happens. The scene that Saul knew was going to come happens. The third strike, verse 3. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. 
And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through. Well, these uncircumcised fellows will, will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. And so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. That's well, such a sad death. Almost symbolically, Saul dies at his own hand. He dies a victim of his own actions, his own folly and disobedience just as much as his own sword. And then just like that, it's, it's over. Verse 6, so on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armour bearer and all his men. All exactly as the spirit of Samuel said it would. But the thing is, is when tragedy hits the king, it doesn't end up just being his defeat. It's a national defeat. The tragedy ends up hitting the whole people. Have a look at verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The whole northern region of Israel, pretty much, the region of the Jezreel Valley and the northern Jordan Valley, they fall and the, Milis- and the Philistines move into all of the towns. Everyone else abandons them. This, 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 is an, this is an unmitigated disaster. And then comes the gloating. The next day, Saul's body and the body of his sons are defiled by the Philistines who then spread the gospel of Israel's defeat to, the, to their people and in the temples of their gods. And we read about the fact that the armour of the Lord, Saul's armour, the armour of the Lord's anointed, is laid out in tribute in the temple of the Ashtoreths. Now, Ashtoreth was the goddess of love, sex, and guess what? War. So it's kind of them saying, this one's for you, Ashtoreth. Great victory today over the Lord. The, the, the shame here is, is, is intense. And were it not for the bravery of the men of Jabesh-Gilead who journeyed through the night across the Jordan Valley from where their town was to retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons from the walls of Bethshan, the book would end about as bleakly as you could imagine. The last verse in 1 Samuel somewhat poignantly tells us that there was a week-long fast to mourn the death of the king of Israel. It's just got this sense of finality to it, doesn't it? Army smashed, king dead, his heirs dead, country occupied, land lost, God humiliated. It's, it, pull up your stumps, it's game over for Israel. But then we remember something, that there is another Lord's anointed, one who's just one a great victory on the very same day against Israel's historic enemy, the Amalekites, who had rescued his people from their clutches and the slavery that would have followed. He's redeemed his people. He's brought victory, gifts and blessing to those that were aligned with him, as we heard last week from Henry. And now the one barrier to him taking his rightful place as ruler over God's people, lies dead on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Well, this has got to be good news for David, doesn't it? 
The man who repeatedly tried to kill him, who relentlessly pursued him for year upon year all across the country, finally even pursuing him into exile of all places with the Philistines and he's now dead. Justice has been served. The way is open. Surely this is a cause for celebration, right? Well, that's what one man thought. Turn to page, the page in your Bible so, to 2 Samuel chapter 1, or flick up if you're looking on your phone. It, it turns out that Saul and his armour-bearer bearer weren't the only people on the side of Mount Gilboa that day. Because there's another person there who actually witnesses the whole tragic scene. A young man saw an opportunity to advance himself by being the bearer of the good news to David. So he thought. Before the Philistines managed to get to the body to abuse it, as they would eventually, the man grabs Saul's crown and his armband and he runs to David's camp down south in Ziklag. He wastes no time doing it. And this is going to be the mother of all misreads. Now, he began his act fairly well. So his clothes are torn, he's put dust on his head. And it's a traditional display of grief. It just sort of says, I'm upset, right? And he falls to the ground to honour David. Again, a promising start. But then he opens his mouth. Look at verse 4. What happened? David asked. Tell me. Let's go to Pretty obvious. The guy comes with his robes torn, dust all over his head. You know, some, this is not coming with good news. And the man says, The men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Jonathan was David's best friend. They were his brothers. Now, I suspect that the young man was probably ignorant of that fact. He mentions Jonathan because Jonathan would have been the heir to the crown. And so he's kind of going, Saul and Jonathan are dead. But this again is a horrific misread of the situation. Because as soon as David hears that news, you can imagine what you would do if you were him. Your heart would just sink. You would go start pumping and you go, tell me this isn't true. And so David wants to know for sure. Verse 5, then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And so the young man goes into what was no doubt a pre-prepared speech that puts him right in the thick of the action. Verse 6, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. Well, so far it actually matches what we know from chapter 31. But that's when he makes the biggest mistake of his young life. He edits out... Saul's armour bearer and he puts himself in that place in what happened and then he changes the ending. Saul calls out to him and he replies, well what can I do? Now as I read what the man says next, I want you to think about David's recent history. I want you to place yourself physically there among the burned out remains of the town of Ziklag where the smell of charcoal is still in your nose, they're your homes, and listen with David's ears, or the ears of his men, what details of this man's story do you think might stand out for you? Verse 8, he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, he answered. I answered, 
I tell you what, I bet their ears pricked up at that detail. And the way they looked at that young man would have been a little bit different. And the man goes on. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. Now, the armour bearer, remember, refused that request. He was going, no, how can I do that? And so that's why Saul ended up killing himself. But that's not how this man tells it. He says he actually did it. And he describes it as if he was doing something noble. And then he plays what he assumes is going to be his ace card in this story. He, he gives David the trophies of Saul's demise. Here I am now, my king, presenting you with the crown and the king's armband. But David doesn't cheer at the death of his enemy. There are no high fives among his men. Not even a, a sigh of relief that his long flight from Saul would now be over. And he certainly doesn't commend the messenger. In fact, he mourns, first of all, verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I think this is a, a very revealing couple of verses. Notice a few things here. First, that it wasn't just David who mourned, it was all the men with him. You've got to remember what these men had been through. These same men had been chased out of the country with David. And yet they all mourn with him in the same manner that they grieved and that they wept when their houses had been burned and their own families had been taken into captivity by the Amalekites. And so this is genuine distress, personal distress at the death of Saul. And I think it shows us something about David. It shows us that it wasn't just David's moral compass that stayed his hand when he had the opportunity twice to, to stick that knife into Saul and to kill him himself. I think there was real affection there for the man who for years he had served, had played music for, he'd eaten at the dinner table with him night after night. He'd married his daughter. Despite what Saul had become, it is quite clear that David loved him. He really loved him. But at the same time, there was a lot for David and his men to grieve, wasn't there? There was Saul's death. There was Jonathan's death. There was the defeated army of the Lord. And there was the nation of Israel itself. It was to them as if the whole country had fallen by the sword. And so we now return to the man that brought them the news. They wept till evening, but David hadn't forgotten. Verse 13, David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner and a Malachite, he answered. For the second time, we're told about his origins. And it's ominous, I think, because I'm very sure that David heard the detail the first time when the man gave it in his own story. 
It's almost like he wants to hear it again from the man's own lips. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And the Amalekite's opportunistic lies come back on his own head. He didn't judge David correctly at all. There would be no reward for him at the end. He wasn't going to be the kingmaker. Although David's cause was just, David twice refused the opportunity to slay Saul or to lay a hand on him. And this son of an Amalekite, of all people, dares to kill the man that the God of Israel had anointed to be king. Verse 15, And then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. But like the men of Jabesh Gilead, David would not let Israel's king go to the grave in dishonour. And so David, the one who played and sang for Saul, composes another song, a song of lament. And it's, a, it's this moving ode of grief at the downfall of the mighty, a song that he commanded his tribe to learn and to sing lest their memories fade. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil, and he goes on. You see, for David, Saul and Jonathan were to be remembered as heroes, warriors of Israel. May the Philistines be silent, and may the mount on which they died be a cursed mountain. Now, we understand, I think, the deep grief that he felt for Jonathan. But his words about Saul seem gracious almost to the extent of being almost false. And yet Saul, for all of his failings, died at the head of the armies of Israel. He died fighting their enemies who had invaded their lands. And although over time we've seen his decline into disobedience, into tyranny, into murder and godlessness, we've got to understand that for 42 years... Saul reigned as their king and many times he led Israel in battle and protected them. He may have been the king that they asked for but he was also the king that God had given them. The death of Israel's king was an unspeakable tragedy even if it was a consequence of his own sin. He was the Lord's anointed and he was to be remembered as such and his passing grieved. And in this, I think we see that David mirrors the heart of his God. God that loves sinner and saint and desires not the death of a sinner, but that all might come to repentance and live. But it's not so much on David that I want to focus 
now, but on Saul. You see, in many ways, Saul points us to Jesus more powerfully at the moment of his death. Because he was the king who couldn't. He was the one whose job it was to save Israel, but who wasn't able to do it. Why? Because he himself was a rebel against God. When the pressure was applied, he crumbled into disobedience. And because of that rebellion, he died. And many who relied upon him died along with him. You see, his people were left conquered. They were left afraid. Saul was the anointed king of God's people who failed. He was the king that sin and death defeated. And in so doing, we are drawn compellingly to the king to come. And I'm not talking about David. In the end, he would fail too. Death would claim him as well. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus, because Jesus is the king who could, where they couldn't, who never disobeyed, never rebelled, always remained faithful. And when he was tempted, he stood firm. And when he was tested, he passed every time. And yet he too would meet with death. His enemies would surround and overwhelm him and he would be slain with his people scattered and fleeing. And if you were to have sat in that upper room with the other disciples that dark weekend 2,000 years ago, you would have tasted that same sense of lostness and despair that Israel must have felt at Saul's demise. How the mighty have fallen. Jerusalem, the splendour of Israel, the splendour of the world, lies slain on your heights. That could have been the phrase that came to your lips. What now? It's all over. But this is where it all changes. Because sin is what killed Jesus. But it wasn't his own sin, but the sins of the world. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And for that reason, death wasn't going to be the end for him either. As Peter would preach before thousands on the day of Pentecost, our second reading from this morning, from verse 24, God raised Jesus from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you'll fill me with joy in your presence. And then from verse 31, seeing what was to come, Peter, he spoke, I mean, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Jesus was the king who faced down our greatest enemy, sin, and defeated it, bearing it on the cross. And then he vanquished that great darkness that blankets every one of us, 
the darkness of death itself by rising from the dead. As Saul's defeat spelled defeat for his people, Jesus' victory spells victory to all who would follow him. Verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, we're going to think about that victory in a moment. But for every victory, there's a defeat. And while the defeat of death and sin is something to rejoice about, the falling of those who are under their dominion is not. Christian triumphalism, whether it takes the form of the seemingly gleeful, placard-waving, you-belong-in-hell kind of Christianity that we see sometimes on the media and cringe back from our televisions as we see it, or simply that feeling of smug satisfaction, perhaps, that might arise as somebody is proudly ranting against Christianity or mocking our faith and we think, yeah, well, I can't wait to see your face when you find out how wrong you are. Now, the first is perversely forgetful. The second needs a more gentle reminder because both have lost sight of the reality that we are ourselves saved only by God's grace and His mercy. There but for the grace of God go I. God didn't save us because we were smart enough to see the truth and respond to it, as if our salvation was due to our own common sense and moral reasoning. No, He had to breathe life into our dead, sin-riddled hearts. By his spirit, he openly, he opened our willfully shut eyes that we might actually recognize our sin for what it is and see the light of his glory in the face of Christ. Indeed, the Apostle Paul would write this instruction to teachers of future believers, a trustworthy saying worth every single one of us remembering. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, Paul that is, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The heart of David as he mourned for Saul, is more like the heart of our Saviour, Jesus. You know, God's judgment is good and it is right. His judgment on Saul was good and it was right. And his judgment on every sinner is good and it is right. Calling on God for vindication when we suffer injustice is right Calling on Christ to return and deal finally with this fallen world is noble and godly. But spiritual schadenfreude is not. It is not for us 
servants of the servant king to stand judging sinners, but to share his heart for the lost and do what our king has commissioned us to do and seek their salvation. Christ's love constrains us that we might seek after their salvation and for them to respond to the king who's died for them. to, to, To pray for their salvation, to invest our resources towards their salvation, to take social and physical risks for the salvation of others, to suffer for their salvation and to preach for it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, can I say we've got the opportunity to do that this week? Next Sunday, Ray Galear is going to be speaking to us from Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector, about the God who justifies sinners, about someone who walks away right with God. Who do you know that needs to hear that message? And what are you going to do this week to make sure they get to hear it? But what I want to finish with in light of today's passage, and in fact as a, as a finish to this whole series, is the wonderful reality that our King Jesus changes our song. He changes it from the song of mourning that could so easily be our song, or the song sung of us, a song of mourning in the face of sin and death, to a song, first of all, of wisdom, that doesn't hide from our sin, but humbles ourselves before our God, in whose hands are the ages. As Moses sang in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. This song recognises where true worth lies and where it doesn't. What's worth dedicating your life to and what isn't? And this song of wisdom sings with all of its heart, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, Thou mine inheritance, now and always, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure Thou art. And that song of wisdom becomes a song of thankfulness to the King after God's own heart, who has gone out before us to save and who goes out with us day after day after day to the very end of the age. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside, who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise is enough for every step I take, sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. And ultimately, this song of thankfulness for our King, Jesus, becomes a song of everlasting joy. For he's defeated sin. He's defeated death. And we await an inheritance that is never going to perish, spoil or fade. That's being kept in heaven for us. 
so that when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Jesus changes our song. And so together we sing, Come Lord Jesus. Amen.